Father, thank you for these wonderful words. God, thank you for giving John these two visions of of what's happening in heaven, Lord, of what what your heart is, of, of how we can be rescued. God, thank you for giving these two visions that give us assurance and comfort. God, I pray for each and every person here who is in need of comfort, in need of assurance, in need of security. God, I pray for each and every heart here that that longs for and thirsts for and hungers for security, safety, and fulfillment and other things, that we would all find our, our satisfaction in you. God, I pray that you would use these words to speak to each and every one of our hearts by your Holy Spirit. God, empower me by your Spirit to preach and empower each and every person here to hear. We need your Holy Spirit to hear from you, so we ask you to give us more of yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, when our four older children were very young, we were living just outside of Vancouver, British Columbia, and we were very far from home. We were over 3,000 miles away from home, and we were lucky if we got to see family maybe once or, you know, at the extreme twice a year, and it was, it was far and it was difficult, but we wanted to teach them about our home. We wanted to teach them about our home country. We were living in Canada. It's like America, but America light. There are some differences, and we wanted to teach them what, what does it look like, you know, what, what are some culture and things like that. So because we wanted to introduce them to, to good, solid culture, we, we introduced them to Johnny Cash. And we had them listen to Johnny Cash hymns at bedtime. He had a hymns album. I don't know how old he was when he was younger and before he started going wayward, and uh, he had a hymns album. And so they listened to this hymns album on repeat every night. And what we didn't know is that it had an effect. They actually had memorized, by the time Abby was three and Noah was five, they memorized the entire album and they could sing it word for word. And so my mom came to visit us. It was her first visit to Vancouver after we'd been there for a little while, and she came up to visit and I said, hey, mom, do you want to help put them to bed? And she said, sure. And so I had already put the music on, and it was playing Johnny Cash. And um, nothing like some Johnny Cash is good for the soul. And so they, they were listening to the Johnny Cash album. And it just happened that a song came on, the kids were singing it, and then, and then that one ended. And then another song came on, my mom sat down at the foot of the bed, and, and they started singing this song. And it was called, Are All the Children In? by Johnny Cash. And he says, when I'm alone... I often think of an old house on the hill, of a big yard hedged in roses where we ran and played at will. And when the nighttime brought us home, hushing our merry den, mother would look around and ask, are all the children in? Well, it's been many a year now in the old house on the hill. No longer has my mother's care. And the yard is still, so still. But if I listen, I can hear it all. No matter how long it's been, I seem to hear my mother ask, are all the children in? And I wonder... When the curtain falls on that last earthly day, when we say goodbye to all of this, to our pain and work and play, when we step across the river where mother has so long has been, will we hear her ask a final time, are all the children in? My mom started bawling, and we started bawling. We were crying, my mom was crying, and the kids were laughing, and (laughs) getting choked up even telling a story, she was crying because 
what was most important to my mom. She loved us. She wanted to make sure we're provided for us. She wanted to make sure we're safe in Vancouver and that we had what we needed and all that kind of stuff. But what was most important to her and what was a theme really from my childhood on was she, she, she never let what was most important um, escape. And, and what was most important for her was not just the physical safety. She got that song as, hey, it's calling. Are all the children there? Are they safe and secure in God? Is that, is that most important question really answered? And for her, she was tears of gladness and sadness both. And because her children were in and she wanted to make sure that her grandchildren were in. So she was, she was wrestling while she was crying out of both joy and hope, was hoping that that most important question God answered, and she desperately wanted her grandchildren to be in as well. She was thinking of the most important question. And, you know, John put that question a different way. But really, it's the same question, just phrased in a different way. You see, my mom was aware that all of us deserve the wrath of God, that all of us, by nature, we've rebelled against God, and because of our rebellion against God, we have earned his wrath. We deserve his wrath. And so that question, it's a, it's a gripping question. Are all the children in? Because otherwise she knew that those who were not would one day face the wrath of God. And that's where Revelation has been for the last couple weeks. And especially last week when we read Revelation 6. If you weren't here, it was, it was all about how Jesus, he went and he took the scroll from the hand of God. He was worthy in chapter 5 two weeks ago. And he takes the scroll. He gets it from God. He begins to crack open each of these seven seals, sealed perfectly. And the scroll represents God's plans. And so each time he opens a seal, it, it releases part of the judgment of God. And we saw really these four horsemen and these four horsemen of the apocalypse and this judgment going out. And this judgment affected the whole world in, in different ways from war and civil war and then the results of that are economic deprivation and, and, star, and famine and then in the end we see that death in Hades and then things get so bad and, 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 and uh, the fifth seal breaks, the, the martyrs say, hey, when God will you bring your justice? And then the sixth seal is open. There are seven seals, but only six were open in chapter six. The sixth seal is opened and that was a seal that really looks forward to the final time when the whole cosmos shake. And the stars are falling from the sky and the, the sun is dark and the moon's turned to blood and things are shaking so badly that it gets to the place where all the most powerful and mighty and rich, they ask a question. I want you to flip back in your Bible. We don't, I don't think we have this on overheads. Revelation 6, 15. Actually, we might have that, yeah. Revelation 6, 15. This is the question that John ends with in Revelation chapter 6, and it leads right into the answer here in Revelation chapter 7. And this is when the kings of the earth, it says, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, they hide themselves, it says. They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? And it ends with this question hanging out there, the most important question. Who can stand? In the face of the wrath of God, that, that we all deserve God's wrath justly, and now even all unbelievers are in this place where they realize that no one can escape and who can stand. And this question reverberates. But before the seventh seal is open, God interrupts that vision and he gives John two other visions because that certainly 
affected John, and it certainly would have affected the first century hearers who were originally receiving this letter, this book of Revelation about Jesus. They would have received this, and when they saw that, they would have wanted surety. They would have needed assurance and wanted to know, who can stand? If we're all deserving of God's wrath, and if God's wrath is so great and all-encompassing that even the cosmos will one day be shaken, who can stand? And so God gives an answer in two visions, and these two visions are really two different visions answering the same question, two different parts of an answer, the same answer, just two different ways of looking at it. And so he gives two different visions in reply to John and to those believers in Revelation who were struggling and suffering, who were in the middle of trials and difficulties and tribulations. They were starting to experience some of these horsemen and wars and rumors of wars and famine and things like that in different places. They were being put in jail. Some of them were being martyred. And so the question for them was very real, who can stand? And what we see in the first eight verses is that the servants of God are the ones who stand. And the reason why is because the servants of God are sealed completely. That's what the first eight verses, if you want to just kind of write down what's what's the crib notes of the first eight verses, what is God trying to get across there is that the servants of God are sealed completely. That's what they're trying to, that's what he's trying to emphasize in this vision. And He's showing John that the servants of God are those who are sealed, completely sealed, meaning to be safe. Now, in the first century, they would have been very familiar with things that we're just not. We don't really use seals very much. We don't use seals and have documents where the king's stamp will be embossed into wax, and, and we, don't, we don't see those kinds of things in our experience. We also don't see Roman soldiers or any other soldiers, for that matter, at our doorstep in our towns, in our cities. We don't we don't have them bunking in our homes, and, and yet they would have been familiar with that. The, the Romans would have carried a crest as well, typically the crest of the empire. And that, that crest would have represented something. It was a seal in a sense, and it was a sign that, hey, don't mess with them because you know what's behind that one soldier that you might be tempted to, to mess with is a whole legion. And not only that, the emperor is behind that soldier, behind that seal, and so don't approach that guy. Don't touch him because he's sealed with this Roman seal, with this Roman sign. And so it's evident that, hey, I'm not going to mess with the Roman soldier. Why? Because of who's behind him, ultimately the emperor and all of his might and power of the empire. And so we're meant to get that kind of imagery here. And that first century, they would have gotten that when this angel, he comes and he's sent. And this angel comes to four angels, it says. There's, there's four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And, and John, and, and God's not confused. He doesn't think that the earth was square, but it's the way we speak too. It's about, hey, as far as the four compasses, the four, as far as the four points of the compass, the east, the west, the north, the south, as far as you can go, these angels are standing and they have on the four corners of the earth, meaning symbolizing that they're in complete authority and power over the earth. And this is, this is before... Revelation 6. And so in Revelation, often what we do is we'll go backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. It's not chronological, but it's telling a story and a theme behind it, a theological intent behind it. And so we hear the judgment, and he says, hey, let me pause for a second so that you know as believers how you stand and who can stand. And so we see these, these angels, they have authority over the whole earth, and they're holding back the four winds. And, and often in the Old Testament, four winds were symbolic of 
the winds of judgment. And in, in Jeremiah 49, he talks about Elam bringing the four winds from the four, four quarters of heaven. In Revelation, I mean, in Zechariah 6 5, there's also four chariots, much like in chapter 6 of Revelation. These four chariots come on the four winds. And then Isaiah 19 1 and 66 5, God rides on the winds. And so these winds here, they, they follow the imagery of God's judgment. Another way to refer to what we've just seen in chapter 6. And yet God says, you know what? Before I carry those things out, before I exercise my judgment, you need to know something, that I've sent somebody to make sure that something happens. And, and we see down here, look in verse 2, it says, another angel was ascending from the rising of the sun, the place of, of power, the place of the east, where the sun rises. It says, with the seal of the living God. And look down your Bibles in verse 2, and he says, And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels that had been given power to harm earth and sea. And he tells them something. He says, don't do that. Don't harm the earth and the seas. And these angels, they're restraining. They're holding back the judgment of God. And we can really see something about God's sovereignty. God is sovereignly restraining his judgment until such a time as, look in verse 3. He says, until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. This angel, he's carrying the divine signet ring with him. He's carrying this, this ring, this, this sign, this seal, this show of, of God's mark. And he's saying, I'm going to mark them on their foreheads. And it's not a literal mark, but it's a mark to say, I own them. I, they're my possession. They're under my protection. Just like a Roman soldier might be marked or have a mark on his shield, they are marked here, saying that they belong to God. A slave would receive a marking, and it would be a sign that, hey, this slave is under my protection. This slave is under my ownership. This slave is my property. Don't mess with him, because you mess with him, you mess with me. And so God sends this angel to make sure that all of his servants are sealed on their foreheads. And then later we'll see in Revelation that there's a counterfeit seal, right? There's this mark of the beast, and that's not a literal mark either. But there's this mark of the beast. Instead of being perfect, God's perfect. And we often see perfection around the number seven and see, see that you know, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so the, the, tri, the trifecta really there. And then you see that the alternate is the imperfection, the 666, the people's foreheads. And so here, though, we see God sealing people. It was a statement that these servants of God belong to the king. And just like a Roman soldier, you wouldn't mess with that servant because that servant has all of the authority of God behind him. He has all the backing, all the power of God protecting him behind him. And so it is evidence of the fact that not only do we belong to God, but we we actually have God's divine protection. We have his sealing. Touching the person would be like touching the king himself to offend, to harm the person, be the same as an act of war against the king's own person. And so God says, hey, this angel, seal all my servants with my mark on their forehead so that everywhere they know, everyone will know who belongs to me and that those who belong to me are sealed in me. They have my protection. They have my provision. They're my possession. So that answer is who can Who can stand? all those who are sealed. And if you are a servant of God, here's the good news. God has sealed you. All throughout the New Testament, it talks about that. It talks about how the Holy Spirit is given as a sign or a seal 
of our salvation. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, if you said, hey, I deserve your wrath, God, would you please rescue me from your wrath? I put my hope in the fact that Jesus, you paid the price for all my sins and you took the wrath of God on yourself and that's what my trust is. That's what my hope is. Then scripture says that you've been sealed. And now in verses four to eight, what, what this imagery is meant to show is that we've been sealed completely. The complete number, the full and complete number of God's people has been sealed. That's what verses 4 to 8 are meant to indicate. This is, this is not about actual numbers here. All throughout Revelation, you look at how are numbers used. They're not used literally unless they explain that literally. And so because this is prophetic literature, he sees this number sealed, 144,000. I remember as a kid thinking, well, who are those 144,000? What exactly is that? But I think this passage gives some light to it. I think they're all, both Jew and Gentile, like sons of Israel, as the New Testament speaks of believers. You know, we're all sons of Abraham by faith. We're sons of Abraham. And so he uses different numbers here, 12 tribes of Israel times 12,000 times 12,000 is 144,000. This is the number of completion times completion. That's, that's the idea we're seeing here. This is who is saved? Well, those who are sealed. How many of those? Oh, the complete and full number. Exactly the amount that God intends. The fulfillment of everyone. No one is lost that God brings in. All the saints are sealed. That's what we're meant to see. It's probably not literal again, but especially given the context of Revelation. Nowhere else in Revelation are Jewish believers listed apart from Gentiles. The entire book is all about God's people together coming to him as one, as faithful overcomers, composed of both Jew and Gentile alike. Another side of this as well, and we see in verse 3, believers in in general are sealed. And then in verse 9, a multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation is standing And so in this context, even in this passage here, this is, hey, all believers are sealed. And then you see, well, well, what does that look like? The fulfillment, the completion number. And then you look in verse 9, and it's made up of everybody, of this multitude, of both Jew and Gentile alike. And if you expand that broader into the context of the New Testament, in, in James, he talks about, he addresses his letter to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, and he doesn't mean just the Jews, he's talking to all believers. And in Matthew and Luke, Jesus talks to the believers there. And he talks about how his disciples will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes. And he's referring to all who are believers. Romans 2.28, Paul writes his letter to the Romans, says that being a Jew is not about being a Jew outwardly. This is how we know this 144,000 applies to both Jew and Gentile. It's a full completion because being a Jew, he says, is not about being one merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, he says, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Meaning the, the person who is praised, the person who is God's child, is it's circumcision of the heart. It's not about outward race. It says that in, in Galatians 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But it says, for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God, both circumcision and uncircumcision. 1 Peter 2.9, he uses language that applies typically only to the Jews in the Old Testament. He says, but you, unbelievers, you, you people who were unbelievers once, you're now, you're Gentiles, you now are made right by faith. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession. And he goes on in, in Titus 2 and in Romans 4, talks about how Abraham is the father of all those who have been saved, is sealed with this righteousness of faith. Revelation 2, 9, John has earlier talked about those who say they are a part of the Jews, but they really aren't. They're in the synagogue of Satan and inferring that those who are truly Jews are those who are the believers in this church. So there's good reason to see this number symbolic, but either way, if you don't see it that way, that's fine. You're still welcome. The reality is I believe it's both Jew and Gentile alike, but the main point here shouldn't be missed. And this main point, either way, really is simple, and it's that God's servants are sealed, and they're sealed completely. The complete number is sealed. They're sealed completely and fully. Not one is lost. In every way, they're perfectly, completely sealed. Perfectly and completely sealed. You know, sometimes we can doubt our salvation. Sometimes we can think, you know what? When I continue to sin so badly, I don't feel like a Christian. You ever, you ever have that, by the way? You ever have that feeling? I know I have. You know what? I've, I've, I, I, I feel like I don't, I don't deserve... I don't deserve God's favor. I don't deserve his mercy. I don't deserve to be a Christian. I've messed up too much. I haven't been good a kid. I haven't been a good son. I haven't been a good brother. I haven't been a good father. I haven't been a good mother. Whatever you're thinking. I haven't been a good wife. Whatever. You can doubt. Especially when temptations and trials hit. Things get difficult. You can wonder, hey, will I really make it through these things? Not only am I, am I really truly a believer, but... Will I make it through these trials and difficulties and temptations? And will I make it through these issues? And the people in the first century must have wondered those things. And God wants them to hear. Who can stand? Those who are sealed. And those who are sealed are sealed completely. Fully. Those who are sealed can have confidence that they are in Christ Jesus. That they belong to God. If you place your faith in God, you need to have confidence today that the right question has been answered. That who can stand? All. All those who have been sealed. Who God says, mine. Who God says, they belong to me. And they belong to me completely. And you don't have to wonder, will God really be able to save that person, my, my child or that friend or that, that relative, that coworker? No, because God will save all completely whom he desires to save, all completely who place their faith in him. It's a good reason to see this number as the completion as well because there's something interesting in there. He doesn't list all the tribes of, of, of Israel. He lists 12 tribes, but they're not all the tribes of Israel. He actually skips one of them, Dan. And that's probably because in the Old Testament, Dan was the one in the northern kingdom, the tribe of Dan led all Israel astray into idolatry. And so he doesn't list Dan, which is very unusual. And actually, this list is unlike any other list in the Old Testament of how he lists people, because Judah is first, and then all those who are outsiders, meaning the concubines' children, are listed after that. The people who were actually normally farther down on the list because they weren't really insiders in one sense, they are listed and so all those who belong to the tribe of Judah, all those who are even from the outside, all those from those who were not really considered totally worthy in the world's eyes, all those are included. But you know who's not included is not Dan, not those who follow after other idols. 
but all those who place their faith and hope in God. And so he substitutes Dan with one of the sons of Joseph, but not both the sons of Joseph. It's kind of an odd way to list things. And I think that's intentional, it's deliberate to say, hey, this is all of those, all those complete number who have, are following God, not giving in to idolatry. And not all of Israel is truly Israel. But all of God's people are sealed and they're sealed completely. That's who's standing. And that's the assurance we need to have today. And then as well, the, the question comes into the, your mind of, okay, well, if those are who are standing, how can we be sure? How can they stand? How do, how do I know I can stand? And that would have been in John's hearers' minds. The servants of God stand, sure. And, and, but they stand completely, sure. The full number is standing, it's completed, they're sealed by God. But how do I know I'm one of those sealed? And, and he answers that question really in the second vision that we see in verses 9 to 14. The servants are saved through the blood of the Lamb. That's how they are standing. That's how they are sealed. How? Because they're saved through the blood of the Lamb. You know, when, whenever we go places with our kids, we always talk about different safety protocols. And if you do this or not, if it's just my weirdness. But whenever we go somewhere where there's a big group or big crowds, and we'll probably go later on in the day, the artosphere, and, and there's going to be big crowds. And so we'll talk about safety. We'll talk about holding hands. But hey, if you get separated, here's where you go. Here's what you say. Here's the kind of person you go to. Here's the kind of people you don't go to um, so that they can be rescued, so that they, they know how to be saved from their troubles. And so we talk about those kind of safety protocols. And, and so what he talks about here is how... How servants are rescued. How servants are kept safe. How servants are rescued and kept safe. How do you know you can stand? And it's if you've washed your garments in the blood of the Lamb. The kids, uh, the people, I'm sorry, the people in the churches in in the book of Revelation, they weren't very different from us. They wrestled with their daily life. They wrestled with struggles and relationships and problems. They struggle with sin and strife. They struggle with their own weakness, the weaknesses of others. I'm sure you're struggling today to some degree with one of those things. And the question of who can stand is answered here. It's those who are clothed in white robes. Look down your Bibles there. And they wear the robes of Christ's victory, the robes of his righteousness, the ones he's won through his righteous life and death given to them to clothe their nakedness, to clothe their shame, representing the fact they're clothed in this victorious righteousness of Jesus. But it's important for you and I to know, just like it would have been important for them to know, that their salvation did not come of their own effort. Yes, they washed their robes, but it's not, salvation did not come from them. Salvation didn't come through their own self-efforts. It doesn't, in that sense, belong to them. But they have better assurance than that. You have better assurance than that. If you doubt your salvation because of past sins or past struggles, you have better assurance. Your salvation did not depend on you to begin with. It doesn't come from you. It didn't originate with you. It originated with God. And we see that right here. Look down at verse 10. It says, salvation what? Belongs to who? You say it out loud. Our God. Salvation belongs to our God. And he sits on the throne. He's he's ruling supreme. We can be sure that our salvation, it belongs to God. He is ruling supreme. And to the Lamb, 
Now, it belongs to God who sits on the throne. He's ruling. He's powerful. He holds our salvation. That's good news. And it also belongs to the Lamb, the one who rescued us from our sins, the one who took God's wrath. It belongs to our God and to the Lamb. That's where our hope is. And that's what all of heaven and earth will worship God for, for his great mercy and salvation. And we see that they, they cry out this song and they sing. And then in response, all the angels, what do they worship all about? It says all the angels standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. And they said, amen. That's right. That's what God deserves all praise for because salvation belongs to him and it belongs to the lamb. That's our confidence. Who are sealed? Who can stand? Those whose salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. Your salvation is secure because it belongs to God. Your salvation is secure because it belongs to the Lamb who paid the price for all your sins. Your salvation is secure because it belongs to the Lamb who took all of God's wrath, who was slain for you. It doesn't originate with you. Your confidence is not in your ability to be good enough, to sacrifice enough, to do penance enough, to reform enough. It belongs to God and to the Lamb. And they worship, all of heaven worships. This is jubilant scene. And then as they're worshiping, they're, they're praising God, the sevenfold praise. Look down at verse 12. The sevenfold praise to God for salvation belonging to him and to the Lamb. It's not of us. And that is displaying God's wonderful mercy, his wisdom. He says, in glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God. Why? For his mercy that's displayed. Those who deserve judgment, if they place their faith in him, they're sealed by him. Salvation belongs to him and to the Lamb. And so then one of these elders, John's standing there, and you can see him witnessing this scene. He's probably dumbfounded. And then one of the elders, one of these, these angelic elders, turns to him, and they, and they ask John a question. It's probably a little intimidating. You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't like getting the answer wrong, much less if I was standing around the throne of God, and one of the angels asked me a question. I'd be like, uh, pass. Because <laughs> I just don't know if I can get anything right in this context. And so he says, one of the elders turns to him and says, who are these? And what he's asking is, I want you to, I want you to see, John, who, who can stand? Who is worthy and how do they stand? That's what he's trying to get John to see. And so he says, who are these clothed in white robes and where do they come from? Who are these people who are standing and why do they have these white robes on? Where do they come from? And so John is smart. He's street savvy. Even if he was going to venture a guess, he doesn't. He passes the ball. He goes, sir, you know. And... And so this elder says, well, let me tell you, these, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, the great pressing, the great trials. And he explains who they are clothed in white, how they're clothed in white, where they've come from. They're coming out of, they're coming out of tribulation on the earth. And, and listen to this. Look in verse 14. He says, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You know, it, it reminds me of Paul talking about how all of our righteousness is like filthy rags, filthy garments. And our hope is not in our righteousness, but our hope here is that we can wash our robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. And they're coming out of a great tribulation. That word for tribulation, it's, it's used all throughout the New Testament. Actually, in, in Jesus said in this world, you will have many tribulations. That's the word he uses, the same word here. 2 Timothy 3, 
Paul writes to Timothy, he says, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted, have tribulations. These are people who've come out of all of the trials and and trials and tribulations and problems in life that are a result of evil warring with God. So it is both the end tribulation as well as the tribulation, everything from when Jesus' ascension to Jesus' return is, is the great tribulation. And it escalates, we saw, with a sixth seal. But look how they get their white robes. It doesn't say they earn these robes of victory. So when, when a victor, as we talked about last week, would be paraded through town, they'd be given a white robe to wear. And be paraded around as a sign of their victory. And these saints, they don't, they don't make these robes themselves. They don't make them white themselves. They're washed in the blood of the Lamb, and the blood of the Lamb makes them white. It's the blood of Jesus. What it's, what it's speaking to is the blood of Jesus, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus that makes their robes white. That's what makes your robes white. That's how we can stand. That's how we know that we're servants of God. If you put your faith, your trust in Him, in His righteousness, in His victory, His blood removes every stain and speck of sin. And what an irony here, right? If your blood is not white... Is a reversal here. The thing that we would think wouldn't work is what truly has cleansing power. It's the blood of Jesus. And it removes every speck of sin, makes, sin makes clothes white. Who can stand? The servants of God can stand. How will they stand? They stand secure because the robe has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And how will they stand secure? Well, the, the final verses tell us that. They stand secure because they're sheltered by the all-satisfying shepherd. The servants of God, they, they're sealed. They're, they're sealed completely. The full number is sealed. Not only are they sealed completely, they stand because they're saved by the blood of the Lamb. That's their confidence. And then not only that, they know that they're secure because they're sheltered by the all-satisfying shepherd. Remember a few years ago, we had a Renew conference at Southern Wesleyan University, and it was a particularly hot weekend, a hot, hot time, and the temperatures were in the high 90s, and, the, and the, there was no shade at all, and we all thought, okay, let's go out and play, have some kids' games on a, on a field. And so we had kids' games on a field out there, and it was great, and the kids didn't really notice it, but all the adults did, that it was sweltering hot, and the sun beat down, and everybody was thirsty, and so everybody's trying to crowd under these couple tents that we had set up. Because the shelter, it was, it relieved the heat. And so we have this, this beautiful picture in, in verse 15. He, he tells us about a few things here. He says, they're before the throne of God. These, these saints, you, these saints can have assurance. The people in Revelation 7 who are in these seven cities who are undergoing persecution and things will get worse. Some have already been martyred. They've had wars, rumors of wars. They had um, affliction. Some famines have begun and they're wondering what, what will happen, what will be the end of things. And then he explains here that they'll be kept safe because they're sealed. They've been covered by the blood of the lamb and now they're sheltered. Look at verse 15. It says they're before the throne. They're worthy to stand before the throne of God. This place of all might, of all power, where 
God is, who, who dwells in unapproachable light, this, this holy God. And now these saints are there in the very presence of God. It says they serve him day and night, not only in his presence, but they interact with him. They're in his temple, in his, in his place where his presence dwells. And then look at the second half of verse 15. Look down your Bible. It says, he who sits on the throne will what? What's the word there? You can say it out loud. What's the word? He will what? Shelter. Now, I don't know of a better shelter than the creator of all the universe. Who's better able to shelter us than God? And there's so many pictures in the Old Testament about God doing that. I've been covering his people with his the shadow under the shadow of his wings like a mother chick would kind of draw in the chicks underneath her wings and keep them sheltered and safe. And, and so it says this picture here that God who sits on the throne will shelter them. The presence of God that evil flees from. The presence of God that no sin can stand in, in, in the midst of it. The presence of God that, that if we were not covered with white robes would, would crush us, would kill us. We stand and it shelters us. God shelters us with his very presence. Maybe you are in need of encouragement today. You know, maybe you're a mom and you feel like you failed. Maybe you're a dad, whatever. Maybe you're whatever season of life you find yourself in. You need confidence. How do, how do I stand? I'm not worthy. I stand because I've been sealed. I, I belong to him. He sealed me. And how do I know that? Well, because salvation belongs to him to begin with. It didn't start with me. And if I want to follow him, it's a sign that I belong to him. And and if I put my faith and my trust in him, I have these white robes on. But not only that, because of these white robes, I can come before his presence and, and I can interact with him, have fellowship with him. But not only that, he promises to shelter me. And why is shelter important? Because life has storms. These people in Revelation that would have received this letter, they would have been experiencing all the storms of life. And maybe you're experiencing storms. We have a shelter in the storm. It says, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. That they're day and night living with God directly. And, And the word there for shelter, it's literally spread his tent over them. Now, that, that would have meant something to people in that century because they would have been aware of the Old Testament and how God's tabernacle, his tent, was his place of presence, his, his place of safety, his place where you go to be in the presence of God, his tent. It says he's going to spread the tent over them. Kind of like when the children of Israel, they exited Egypt. God led them out. And, and how did he lead them out? He led them out by day with a cloud by day to shelter them. And at night, their shelter was a a pillar of fire, their safety, their security. So God says, I'm going to shelter you with my tent, with my presence. My very presence will go with you to shelter you. They won't have to endure torment ever again. They have supreme protection of the living God. That's your assurance. You have supreme protection of the living God. Then in verses 16 and 17 is really the fulfillment of a prophecy that we've seen in Isaiah. Look in, look in Isaiah 49, 10. I think we have that for you. This is a prophecy about the time when God will make all things right. And he says, They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity or mercy on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. That's what we see here in Revelation 7, 15, 16, 17 is the fulfillment of that. 
They shall hunger no more, says in verse 16. They won't need anything else to fulfill them, to satisfy them. Not just physical hunger, but spiritual hunger. Maybe you're hungry this morning, and I'm not talking about the kind of hunger that you're thinking about the Mother's Day lunch that you're going to have in a little bit here. But not only that, he says, he'll, you'll hunger no more. Neither shall they thirst anymore. And that reminds us of how Jesus, he was with a woman at the well, and he is talking to her, and she's saying, you know, where, where do you get this water from that never goes out? And he goes, I'm the water of life. He says, they'll shall hunger no more, and I'll thirst anymore. And he says, the sun shall not strike them. That would have been very meaningful in that Mediterranean climate. The sun could get very intense and hot and it would be wilting. He says, nor any scorching heat. Whatever the sun in your life that you're facing right now, whatever the, the hunger that you have, whatever the thirst you have, here's, here's the answer. They shall hunger no more, thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor scorching heat. Whatever that heat of trial might be, God's people can be sheltered, protected, and kept safe. You might die. He doesn't say that we won't die. He doesn't say these people won't die. They're in heaven. The end is we're all, all who put our trust in God, we'll all be there in the end. This multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's the end game anyway. The important thing is to know that we've been sheltered, that we no longer will thirst or hunger the trial ultimately cannot take our soul. Then he tells the reason in, in verse 17. The elders speaking to John, he says, the reason why this great multitude of believers can be so confident and stand before God's throne, look down your Bibles, he says, for, because. Look in verse 17. He tells why. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The one who's the lamb, the one who is worthy to take up the scroll. He started to release all these judgments. He's the same one who will guide you. And he'll guide you to springs of living water. So you can be satisfied in him. See, thirst, your thirst is quenched in him. And it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eye. He'll lead you to God, and God wipes away every tear from your eye. The lamb is the shepherd. First John looks for the lion that he hears about, and he sees a lamb, and then he looks and sees the lamb. He says, the lamb is really a shepherd. The sacrificial lamb is the one who leads them. And he, he's perfectly suited because he himself is a sheep. Sacrificial lamb who is slain. So he knows your experience and he's able to lead you exactly where to go. This, this one who is a lamb who was slain, who was a lamb like you, he is the one who will lead you and guide you. He knows exactly what you need. You know, we, you know, think about a shepherd in those times and a shepherd really cared for the sheep, but the shepherd was never a sheep, so he couldn't really think like a sheep, didn't know what a sheep really needed. And so Jesus is saying here that he knows exactly what we really need. He knows all of the ways we thirst and hunger and yet he can perfectly do this because he's also the shepherd. There's shelter from God's very presence. The rocks can't cover God's wrath. Who can stand? No one on their own. Everyone would cry out for the rocks to cover them from God's wrath. But here we see that God, 
enables his servants to stand. He seals them. He, 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 they belong to him. They're washed in these righteous robes. Their, their robes are washed in the, in, the, in the blood of Christ. They've been made righteous, and God spreads his present like a tent. The source of all of our satisfaction is found in him. Shelter from deprivation, from want, from heat. And he leads us to springs that quench the thirst that we didn't even know we have. Because so often we go thirsting after so many other things for satisfaction, for the answers. But we all look to be pa- to other pastures that, to fill us, but they make us sick. And the, the good shepherd leads us to his green pastures. He ultimately guides us to springs of living water. He understands our, our, our trials. He understands our suffering. He understands our sorrows. He cares about us. He understands there's heat. And sometimes the heat's pretty intense, but it says he shelters us in the midst of that. And then one day, he's going to get rid of all of that. He's going to get rid of every source of struggle and trial and sorrow. It's a beautiful picture for, for my kids when they get upset when they're really little. I love to wipe their tears away from their eyes. It's just something I do. They cry. They come here and I wipe their tears away. I hug them. I hold them. And I want them to know they can come to me when they're struggling, when they're crying. And I don't want them to be turned away from me. And that's the image we have here with God. He doesn't say, go away when you're struggling, when you're, trying, when you're crying, when things are hard. He says, no, come to me. Let me wipe your tears away. The complete removal of every sorrow, trial, sadness. Every tear wiped away. You know, the, um, the song I mentioned at the beginning, it means more to me now because my mom's passed on. She's crossed the river as Johnny Cash sang. And I love it because I can identify with those, those final words. She says, but if I listen, I can hear it all no matter how long it's been. I seem to hear my mother ask her all the children in. And I wonder when the curtain falls in that last earthly day, when we say goodbye to all of this, our pain and work and play. When we step across the river where mother has so long has been, will we hear her ask a final time, are all the children in? I don't have to wonder that. She put her trust, her faith in Jesus. She, in her final days that we got to share with her, they were sweet. Not because she wasn't struggling, not because she wasn't suffering. She did. She suffered miserably. But ultimately, she was at peace, and she was happy in the midst of things, and joyful in the midst of her body being racked with cancer, because she knew she was sheltered. She knew she was sealed. She knew she was saved by the blood. She wasn't worried about suffering after death. She found the shelter. She had answered the most important question of who can stand. What are the questions you're trying to answer in your life? Have you answered the most important ones? John heard this most important question, who can stand? The answer is those who've been sealed. Those who belong to God. Those who've been saved by God through the blood of the Lamb. Those who find shelter and have a shepherd. All of these can confidently say, just like the last words in that Johnny Cash song, which are actually, I come. Let that be the words that you can say. I come because I, I know I've been sealed. My faith is not in me. My faith is not in my ability. My faith is in the one who seals. My salvation belongs to him. My robe's been washed in the blood of the lamb. I'm sheltered by his presence. Even though I might suffer a miserable death, I can confidently say, God, I come. Amen.
We'll get into the band, come up, and we'll close with song. But let's pray in the meanwhile. Father, thank you for this passage. It gives us assurance that we do not have to fear any of your judgment. We do not have to fear the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We don't have to fear all the war and civil war, famine and pestilence and death and Hades. We don't have to fear those things because, God, we can stand confidently in you. God, I pray for all those who don't stand confidently in you, that they would now put their trust in you. God, that all those who do not know you here today would place their faith in you, look to you for salvation, not try to hide themselves, but look to you for salvation and find themselves hidden in you. That, Lord, we would all trust in your merit, trust in the salvation that belongs to you, that you've sealed us, that that we've been made white and been given victory by your blood. God, may we all have fresh confidence today that we are sheltered by you no matter what might come. God, I pray that you would keep these most important questions before us and that we'd be confident in the answer because of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.